Welcome to episode 131 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sidecar trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all of the podcast players by going to sycomer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is the Wounded Warrior Project, who offers direct programs in mental health, career counseling, and long-term rehabilitative care, along with advocacy efforts that improve the lives of millions of warriors and their families. You can find out more about how they support veterans and access their programs at WoundedWarriorProject.org. On today's episode, I'm featuring a conversation with Army veteran, Wounded Warrior, and peer support leader with the Wounded Warrior Project, Kira Torkelson, as we discuss her experiences as a woman veteran and an advocate for wounded warriors in her community and women veterans nationwide. I'd like to take a moment to share something here. Kira was wounded in the Soldier Readiness Processing Center attack that happened at Fort Cavazos in 2009 when a fellow soldier opened fire on a group of soldiers who were preparing for deployment. Kira shares her experience of that day during this conversation, not in graphic detail, but with more specificity that many might have heard, and the content may be disturbing to some. We appreciate Kira's courage in sharing her story publicly and ask that you care for yourself in whatever way is best for you as you listen. You can find out more about Kira by checking out her bio on our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Kira, glad to have you on the show to talk about the Wounded Warrior Project and the unique needs of women veterans. But before we get into that, I'd like to have you share a bit about yourself and why you're so passionate about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm super excited to talk to you about all my favorite things. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, had a little bit of a troubled childhood, and that led me to be a wild teenager. And in order to get some discipline, I decided to join the Army. I joined the Army Reserves in 2006, went through basic training, loved it, came back home. And yeah, it was something that I was super passionate about. I really loved the discipline and the camaraderie that the military gave me. And I planned to be a lifer after I got deployment orders to go to Iraq. So my husband and I got married quickly, like all good soldiers do. And then I went off to training and I was planning on enlisting full time after the deployment. I went to California for that NTC training and then Fort Hood. We got to North Fort Hood for our pre-deployment. We had only been there for one day when we took buses over to South Fort Hood to do our paperwork. We were getting anthrax shots, doing paperwork, taking pregnancy tests. Me and another soldier got called out of line where we were to go head of our pregnancy tests checked or something in another building. And they gave us our nice little Jimmy Dean meals with those little Vienna sausages, quality food there from the army. We bonded over that meal, actually, me and this fellow veteran. And when we went back up to the SRP building, the seats were all full. We were almost the front of the line. The seats were all full and we got put in the back. She actually didn't even have a seat, had to go behind the wall. There was a cubicle wall separating us and she had to go behind that because it was so full. And I remember sitting there and 
I was irritated that I was at the back of the line now and I went up to this specialist and I'm like, hey, it was almost our turn. We had, you told us to go down there and we came back and he's like, I'm just a puppet on the strings. And I remember when I was talking to him, seeing someone off in the corner and I just felt weird about it. But I was a specialist. So I went and sat down and shut my mouth and was reading my book, giving the guys with seahorses and bubbles that patch on their arm a hard time and just passing time. And a man jumped up in front of the rows of chairs that I was in and shouted Allah Akbar. And he started shooting directly into the crowd that I was in. I was on the back row and there were probably four rows of chairs with maybe 10 people in each of them. And right away I was shot in the top of my head. Instantly my face was covered in blood and I got down and I was like, okay, I thought, I, I honestly thought it was fake. I thought this was a training, rubber bullets, airsoft something I almost stood up and was like hey time out like you got me I'm bleeding and then I realized it was real I called 911 on my phone and just put it down by my side really thinking that all I wanted to do was just send a text to everyone in my phone and say I love you because I thought I for sure wasn't going to make it out of there none of us have weapons we're on Fort Hood I started army crawling around and I remember turning around and looking back and seeing him shooting people on the ground behind me. And when I turned back around, a man, which was Captain Gaffney, he was from a unit, was charging the shooter with a chair. And that gave me the ability to get up and run the opposite direction. Once I got over there, people were like, you need to sit down, sit down. And I was like, no, I'm not sitting down. I'm getting out of here. I probably looked terrifying to them with blood all over me. And I found a sergeant of mine and I grabbed the back of his coattail because I couldn't see over the cubicle walls, but he could. And I just followed which way he was going. And then we eventually ran out the door that the shooter started shooting from. At some point, I grabbed another captain. And I was like, let's go, ma'am. Let's keep running. And we went into the dome that's there at Fort Hood. And that's when I felt the bullet in my back and I took my jacket off and another soldier pulled it out. From there, it's just mass chaos. No one is prepared for something like this to happen on a base in the middle of Texas. The shooter was eventually taken down. Both of their weapons jammed at the same time. Um, I'm sure you've heard this story. I was with a mental health unit, the 1908 Combat Stress Detachment. And so Nadal Hassan was probably going to deploy with our unit or our sister unit that was also training with us. And from there, this just led me on this path I took the traditional route of what the army prescribed me to do. That night, I got put in a little room. And then the next day, I went back to training. For two weeks, I was back thinking I was going to still get to deploy. They were packing the wound on my back every other day and unpacking it, packing it. They gave me sleeping pills and pain pills. And I just went about my life. I thought I was going to do it still. So, and then they decided that I needed all four of my wisdom teeth pulled. And then after that, the sergeant that was escorting me was like, what? You got shot? You should be at the WTU. So she pulled me or had me pulled. I don't know how that happened. And my unit ended up leaving and they kept saying I was going to catch up with them. And I didn't end up catching up with them. They did their deployment and I went on a journey of healing. Uh, going to doctor's appointments every day was basically my job at that point at the WTU. And I suffered from chronic daily headaches and PTSD symptoms and those having back spasm issues as well. 
And I was just taking the pills and doing what they told me to do. And these pills are making me not have a personality. And these pills are making me have migraines, but they're for my headaches. It didn't make sense. So that really kicked off just wanting a more holistic approach to healing. And that's where I'm at now over a long span of healing journeys. I really appreciate you sharing that story. I get the sense that you've become much more comfortable telling that story over time. And I think it's important for people to hear that story. But I was actually in Afghanistan at that time. And I remember hearing about that. This is 2009. So I was on my first of my two deployments to Afghanistan. And I was sitting in my office. I remember hearing about that and, and saying that we expected that in Afghanistan. We were prepared for that. And we were able to respond to that. But that situation, as you'd mentioned, isn't something that you would expect on a base in pre-deployment processing in the United States. And as challenging as that was for you, then at that point, what you were expecting your future was going to be changed completely. Absolutely. I'm curious how you, I don't know, if you did come to peace or how you might have come to peace to that? That That was really hard. After, so the shooting happened in 2009, and I didn't get medically retired until 2013, but it was a two-year med board process. And by the time we got to the end of it, I was like, wait, no, I love the military. I want to stay. And they were like, yeah, it's too late. And so it was really hard. At first, it was really dark times for me. I, I was struggling hard with PTSD and all these medications that were making it worse or sometimes making it better. And then not having that community anymore and just really feeling left without a purpose. And really, that's where Wounded Warrior Project came into play for me. I joined Wounded Warrior Project in 2010 and started with, I got a backpack at the WTU in Fort Riley, Kansas and had shorts and underwear. And I didn't need those things like people probably need them overseas when they get them, but it was still nice to have. And then to be brought into that community and go out with other veterans and feel that sense of purpose or just feel that sense of camaraderie again, really. The purpose didn't come till later when I could give back and live the Wounded Warrior Project logo. Yeah. And I think one of the things and one of the things that I'm interested to hear about in your personal story is the unique needs of women veterans. And you become a recognized leader in the Wounded Warrior Project effort to support women veterans. Even hearing your story, the fellow veteran that she was behind the cubicle, she ended up not serving with you. You ran into another captain, grabbed her out, the sergeant who who stepped up for you. Even in that short period of time at Fort Hood, you obviously had some connections with other women service members. Why do you feel it's important for women veterans to be vocal about their experience and their needs? Well, absolutely. And Dana and I are still friends today. She has an incredible story. The female that was behind me that we bonded that day, I talked to her almost every day. She's the godmother of my child and I love her to death. And going through that together and then being able to heal together was amazing. And so it's, women are so often overlooked in the military. I have purple heart plates on my car. And we get out of the car and people will thank my husband for his service. And he tells them, no, it was actually her. He never served in that capacity. So it just, it's not something people think about right away. And I think it's important to be proud of our service and proud of what we did and talk about it. 
And you hear that. We hear that often. I, I had the opportunity to my entire military career to serve with, to be a supervisor of, and, and to serve under women veterans. Actually, Captain Mary Ricks was my commander at that deployment in 2009. And so I recognize the value and the need. But I think that story that you just told about no matter what, you have all of the experiences and the external indicators of being a service member, but still people are questioning your service. Yeah, that happens. I could tell you all sorts of stories, but I've had another fellow veteran say, I told him that I was part of a Purple Heart chapter in Kansas City. And he said, oh, that's so nice of them to let you be in the auxiliary. And I was like, why would I be in the auxiliary? So I never let it get to me. I brush it off. I make a joke about it. I put them in their place for sure. They're going to know and they might feel pretty silly for saying that, but hopefully that stops them from doing it again to someone else. But I'm curious in, in your role as a mentor, supporting other women veterans that, that may not feel as strongly about using their voice, that you're able to support them in telling their story. Absolutely. I love leading the peer support group here in Kansas City. And we have a couple of female veterans in there that are awesome. And then we've gone and done events, just us, and just being around other female veterans where they can feel comfortable to tell their stories practice it there so then they are more open to sharing in larger capacities if they feel like it but I think really just making that sense of feeling proud for doing it in the first place there's a lot of female veterans that don't want to talk about their service that feel like they shouldn't be proud and I'd never want that for any female no absolutely it's really Psychom and Wounded Warrior Project have partnered to launch a six-part women veteran series designed to help people understand about the, the contributions of women veterans throughout history. Uh, this is obviously important to you. It's important to me. But why would you recommend that people that are working with veterans, potentially women veterans, why would you recommend that they take this course? Honestly, I think knowledge is power. And for people to just, it should be empowering them to know these things. And hopefully people are excited to learn about all the contributions women have made because a lot of them are very incredible. I think one of the things, like you're talking about, a lot of people think they know what the truth is. Women didn't serve in combat or, or even situations like you, that if you didn't serve in combat, then you don't have trauma or things like that. And I think that's one of the most important things about people telling their stories is that to basically debunk what everybody knows to be true. Absolutely. I also think that when people tell their stories, it helps with the trauma. Feel it to heal it, right? It sounds corny, but I totally believe in that. And empowering people to share their story to help, it helps other people share their stories and then hopefully helps break that stigma about getting help for PTSD as well, which is why I tell my story. I think one of the challenges that especially, let's say service members in general, you were just talking about people don't want to reach out for help because they feel like they're isolated. But even what you were talking about, women veterans, they may even feel that their situation is even more unique. Nobody will believe me if I say it, and I don't want to say it because it may cause more challenges for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's how you hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you run some peer support groups for Wounded Warrior Project in the Kansas City area. What can you tell me about those programs? Well, yeah, I lead the peer support group here in Kansas City on the third Monday of the month. We just meet up. There's no staff members. I'm a volunteer. 
And really, I just order food and help start conversations. I do an icebreaker sometimes. I talk about different resources for them and just let them talk. I think really that's just what people want is to speak and to be understood. And when you're amongst other veterans, it's really easy once you get to start talking to feel understood and heard. And that's so powerful. Wounded Warrior Project supports post 9-11 veterans, but obviously post 9-11 veterans are a very broad group. Again, I think when you joined the military, I had already been in for 12s. I joined in 92. And so there's a number of veterans, I would imagine, that come to the groups, younger veterans in, in maybe their mid-20s, all the way up to older veterans like me that are probably approaching 50 and beyond. There absolutely is. And it's still, since we have that core thing in common, it doesn't seem to matter our ages. You can see sometimes, you know, Jim's over here and he's, okay, you guys are starting to talk about some hippie, hippie dippy bullshit. Or you can tell a little bit, but we all have that common interest and that common service that we did. And it, it seems to work, but we do have people from all ages. I also am a warrior leader in Kansas City, so I can help lead events. This Friday, we're doing a Royals game for an alumni and a guest. And those are a lot harder to get veterans to connect with because you're watching baseball and we might be all over the place, but I'll still try to engage and get people talking. No, I, I think that's great. Wounded Warrior Project has done a lot of work to support, as, as we're talking about, the mental health and wellness of service members and, and veterans, post-9-11 veterans particularly. You've mentioned a little bit about how Wounded Warrior Project helped you specifically. There's a lot of different organizations you can be involved with. You're involved with a number of them. You just said they order the Purple Heart. But why Wounded Warrior Project in particular is something that you've really remained engaged with? That is a great question because I have been with Wounded Warrior Project since 2010. That's coming up on 13 years now. And I think just seriously, the logo, living the logo has been huge for me. Just when I started going to events, just getting out of the house and going was huge for me. And then I was able to keep going and giving back. And then I was being carried. And at some point, it switched and I was able to help carry. And still, sometimes those roles still reverse, they're ever revolving. We sometimes need a helping hand. And Wounded Warrior Project really gave that to me. They gave me a sense of empowerment, which was really huge too. I think that's a key part. Like you can give veterans all the things, you know, you can give them new cars and houses and everything. But if you don't empower them to want to do that on their own or, build something for themselves, take charge of their healing, take charge of their life, then you're just giving them stuff and that's not going to fill them up. So the empowerment was really huge. And then the purpose to serve again, because I am unemployable per the VA. I get these headaches and I don't know when they're going to take me out. But Wounded Warrior Project gives me the opportunity to be able to serve my fellow veterans I also am a peer support leader for Project Odyssey, which is a five-day adventure-based trip where they do challenge-by-choice things. They learn a little bit more about PTSD and different skills, and then they have follow-up after and before, so it ends up being a 12-week program. I just did that a couple weeks ago, and I'll be going on an all-female one in September, and it's just going to be so cool to be on that side 
and help to empower these women by modeling what Wounded Warrior Project gave to me, honestly. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing. And I, I really appreciate, obviously, your service. For many of us, maybe the service didn't end the way that we wanted, but it, it ended the way that it ended. And so I appreciate your willingness, not just to serve then, but also to continue to tell your story. If folks wanted to find out more about maybe the work that you're doing in Kansas City, maybe they're in the area, or maybe they want to hear more about that stuff, how could they do that? I'm always on social media, Instagram, Facebook. It's a great way to reach out to me, to speak to me. The Resource Center with Wounded Warrior Project is always great as well. They can direct you to all sorts of resources. Also, even if you're not post nine eleven, you can call that resource line and they can find resources for you as well. That's great. Kira, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, Wounded Warrior Project, which offers direct programs in mental health, career counseling, and long-term rehabilitative care, along with advocacy efforts that improve the lives of millions of warriors and their families. Find out more about how they support veterans and access their programs at WoundedWarriorProject.org. As I mentioned in the beginning, I applaud and appreciate Kira's courage in sharing her story about what happened in 2009. If you were serving at the time, you most certainly heard about it. As I mentioned during the conversation, I was serving as the acting first sergeant for my unit in Afghanistan at the time, and I heard about it. It was inconceivable at the time, and is still shocking now. For a bit of context for those who haven't served, the pre-deployment processing days before and after deployment were dreaded, but only because of the boredom, futility, frustration, even the militariness of it all. Not because it was a place of danger, but because it was a place where literally nothing happened, except on that day in 2009. This is an example of how the military is an inherently dangerous occupation, and that danger doesn't always have to do with being in combat. I've lost more soldiers that I've served with to illness, suicide, and accidents, both on duty and off, than I have during combat operations. According to the Defense Casualty Analysis System, the total number of U.S. active duty military deaths in 1980 was 2,392. The total number of active duty military deaths in 2010, 1,485. There was no war in 1980. In 2010, the U.S. was at war in two different theaters of operation, and 2009 and 2010 was the height of the conflict in Afghanistan. But only 456 of those 1,485 deaths in 2010 were as a result of hostile action. Almost an equal number was a result of accidents. 238 were the result of illness, and 289 service members died by suicide in 2010. You don't have to be in combat to experience trauma or to be in mortal danger in the military, and Kira's experience isn't uncommon. The process for discharge from the military took so long that she was healed, but unable to stay in the military and continue the life that she had grown to love, as many of us did. Where she was wounded at doesn't matter. It was that she raised her hand to join the military, and it was in service to her country that she was wounded. Male or female, combat or non-combat, U.S.-based or overseas, it didn't matter. Service is service, and sacrifice is sacrifice. So I hope you'll join me in appreciating Kira for her sacrifice and give other soldiers the benefit of the doubt when they indicate that they were wounded or disabled as a result of their service, but were never deployed to a combat zone. The other point that I'd like to make is something that Kira said towards the end of our conversation, where she was referring to the need to empower veterans to do things on their own, build something for themselves, take charge of their healing. We shouldn't just support veterans by giving them things. Sure, if they need resources to level the playing field, if there's a legitimate need that they have that can be met, then veterans should have access to those things, just as anyone should. But Kira's point of giving veterans fish rather than helping them fish on their own is a way of disempowering veterans. 
That's not to say that veterans should have more obstacles in the way to make their post-military life more fulfilling. Trust me, veterans are more than capable of doing things the hard way on their own. If you gave a veteran a task to get from point A to point B and a choice of two routes to take, one, a short, easy walk across a flat field, and the other, one of the longest and most gnarly obstacle courses ever developed, about half the time, the veteran will choose the long and difficult path, and most of the rest of them will think hard about doing it. So by empowering veterans to manage their own lives, giving them what they need to succeed instead of giving them what we think they want to make their life easy is not helping veterans. It can be, in the long run, even harmful to them. Hopefully you heard that message loud and clear from someone who knows what she's talking about and has the experience to back it up. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Kira. If you did, we'd appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at we're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's PsychArmor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the Women Veterans Series, a six-part series powered by PsychArmor in partnership with the Wounded Warrior Project, which explores the history, triumphs, and unique challenges of women in uniform throughout history while highlighting the valuable service of the fastest-growing group of veterans. You can find the course series through the link in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Much appreciation to the team at PsychArmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator. Support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.